Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for today and for your grace. I thank you for an opportunity now that we have to look to your word. And God, I pray and ask that you would work mightily and miraculously in this time. God, that you would use me not because of me, but in spite of me, not for my glory, but for yours and not for my sake alone, but for the sake of the saints here at Harmony. God, I just pray and ask that you would help us to not only hear your word, but also apply it to our lives, that it may sink deep into our hearts, that we may live it each day going forward. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we started the book of Ephesians, and we covered the first two verses, and now we find ourselves in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 7. And if you remember, the book of Ephesians can be divided almost in half, where the first part of the book of Ephesians is written uh, kind of underscoring and reiterating the gospel message, the truth of the gospel, that is what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, that He sent His Son to die on the cross to be the payment for our sin, that though we were rightly deserving of death and and, uh, punishment in hell because of our sin, that Christ died in our place, He took the punishment we rightly deserved, and He was raised to newness of life. That all of that is reiterated in those first three chapters and what that truly means. And then in uh, chapters 4-6, through we then learn how we live in light of that truth. In light of the Gospel, we learn how we live. So we're going to be working through these first three chapters for the next seven or eight years or so, or however long it takes us to get through the book of Ephesians. And But as we do that, we will seek to apply it. We're not just going to learn theology, but also we're going to learn as we go along how this theology shapes the way we live here and now. So without further ado, let's look at our text. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the questions that's been asked throughout human history is, what on earth am I here for? In other words, what is the meaning of life? And it's a question that continues to plague humanity. Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Is there any purpose? Or are we just wandering about aimlessly? And this question is one that has troubled many unbelievers, but it's also troubled Believers, Christians who either lack maturity or who have lost sight of all that God has for them in Christ. As I said last week, it's easy to find ourselves in a place where we're simply going through the motions of life and it's easy to find ourselves living with a spirit of uncertainty, aimlessness, and fear. This, however, is not the way we as followers of Christ are called to live. Instead, we're called to live lives of promise, purpose, and peace, as we saw 
last week. Promise meaning that this confidence not only in what God has done, but what He is doing, what He's going to continue to do for us. We trust His promises. And purpose, purpose meaning eagerness to serve God, to follow His commands, to be in His will, and to be used by Him in our lives. And peace, meaning this life of tranquility and rest, knowing that we are secure in Christ. So as we look at our text this week, we see that Paul continues along this same vein. In fact, the whole book of Ephesians is written to remind the church of the unfathomable riches that they have been given in Christ. In other words, the whole book of Ephesians is about, look at how rich you are in Jesus. Look at how much you've been blessed. And then live in light of that truth. This book is meant to remind the church then and the church today, of who we are in Christ and what it looks like to live in light of the Gospel. That is, the power of the Gospel to transform our lives. I do want to mention that this text is often used to teach the doctrine of election. And I don't want to I don't want to skirt over that. This text today, verses 3 through 7, especially, really verses 3 through 14, are used to teach this doctrine of election. I don't want to skirt around that or over that, but I think it's important to note that I'm not going to spend most of our time this morning teaching this doctrine of election per se. However, this text unashamedly presents this doctrine, the fact that God chooses us, that this text presents that clearly. And God seems to unashamedly say, this is the way this is. So it's, it's clear from this text that the main actor of salvation is God and not us. So Scripture uses this topic of choosing, by the way. So we're not going to try to figure out how God's choosing us and our choosing God, how God's sovereignty and our human responsibility come together. That's not the point of this text. I don't want to miss the beauty of this text, as we get bogged down into that, there is a place for that. And I do think we can understand those things and how they connect, and I think we should strive at understanding that. But I don't want to miss what God is saying here. You see, the point is that God's the main actor in this text. It's what He has done. He has done this. He has done this. He has done this. In Him, in Him, in Him, again and again. Scripture uses this topic of God choosing people for Himself to address uncertainty, aimlessness, and fear. That ultimately, this is meant to serve as encouragement to God's people. That in times of trial, we see Scripture again and again say, God chose you before the foundations of the earth. God chose a people for Himself and you are among those people. So be encouraged. You see, this is meant, this doctrine is meant to encourage and to remind God's people of His promises, His purposes, and to give them peace. I also want to note, just, I have like several sermons before my sermon. I also want to note that verses 3 through 14 is one long Greek sentence. So I've broken this up, I've stopped at verse 7, and you may have even noticed that I didn't read it the way the NASB actually presents it. That because it's one long sentence, we don't necessarily, the the, uh, verse divisions don't necessarily correspond with the periods and the sentence divisions. There's some question as to how this should exactly be divided out. 
But the point is this. Verses 3 through 14 is one long Greek sentence. You can't really do that in English. You can't take all those words and string them together well and make it one sentence. So in English, we break it up into several sentences simply because we we don't want to lose track of the meaning of what is being said. However, if you take one sentence and you make several sentences, there's also this idea that you may lose the main idea or the key point of the original sentence. That if you break it up into several sentences, the key idea may be lost. So I say all that to say, what I want you to remember is that verses 3 through 14, what Paul is saying there is this, glory be to God for all that He has done for us in Christ. And then begins to explain what God has done for us in Christ. That really, you can sum up, in many respects, the first part of Ephesians in these verses. Glory be to God for His unfathomable riches that He's given us in Christ. So without further delay, let's jump into our text and see how God uses this idea that He chose us, that He's given us these unfathomable riches, that it's all for His glory. Let's see how God uses this, or shows us what He has done for us in Christ through this text. So let's jump into our sermon outline. The first point in our outline is, number one, God has made us citizens. God has made us, number one, citizens. Look at verse verse 3 with me. Paul begins to reflect on God's greatness, and he immediately, as he reflects on God's greatness, he erupts in praise. This should be, by the way, our natural response in life. That when we begin to think about God's greatness, we erupt in praise. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed is the word uh, eulogetos, which carries this idea of speaking well. It's where we get the word, the, our word eulogy. So when you go to a funeral and they deliver the eulogy, you don't usually hear things like, well, Henry, he was quite a rough sport. You know, I don't, I didn't really like him that much. Instead, in a eulogy, then they always ask somebody who's going to speak well. You know, they don't ask like the next door neighbor who always had this conflict with the guy. They ask like his son, right? Who got a big inheritance from Henry. But anyway, so they always, it's to, to eulogize means to speak well of. So it's where, and that's where this word comes from. The Greek word is eulogetos. So he's saying, Paul is speaking well of God is what he's doing. God, this is blessed, I'm going to speak well of God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, or for He has, blessed us. So the difference is, it's the same Greek word, but it's not that God speaks well of us, Like, oh, you know that Dan guy, he's a really great guy. Instead, the point is that when God blesses us, He speaks well to us. That He gives us His blessing. So we eulogize God, we speak well of God because He is good. God instead blesses us and speaks good to us. He says, blessed, for He has blessed us in Christ. Blessed be God, for He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is an interesting statement. He says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And what exactly does he mean by this? The point that Paul is driving at here is that we've been given every benefit, every spiritual blessing 
that we could as a citizen of heaven. That we are citizens of heaven. So that first point in our outline that God has made us citizens, He's made us citizens of heaven. We may not currently be there, but that's where our citizenship lies. And as citizens, we've been granted wonderful rights and privileges. The J.B. Phillips translation of verse 3 says this, Praise be to God for giving us, through Christ, every possible spiritual benefit as citizens of heaven. I love that. Praise be to God for giving us, through Christ, every possible spiritual benefit as citizens of heaven. This is why Paul said in Philippians 3, he said, We do not live like the rest of the world, Because we're not of the world. And he goes on in verse 20 of Philippians 3 to say, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea of our citizenship being in heaven is not unique to the book of Ephesians. See, Scripture though is clear that we are indeed members of His kingdom. Colossians 1 says the same thing. Verses 13-14 says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption the forgiveness of our sins. That when we are saved, we become citizens of His kingdom. A heavenly kingdom. If you remember when we worked through the book of Zechariah, Zechariah spoke of a coming kingdom, a kingdom without walls, a kingdom where there would be no borders, and where God would, God's Spirit would be with us. And that is exactly, that was pointing forward to the church, pointing forward even further to the future when His kingdom comes to this earth. But we are part of a kingdom. So we're subjects in that kingdom, we're citizens in that kingdom, here and now. But it's a spiritual, heavenly kingdom. It's the point of Ephesians 2, when he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You used to be under a different rule, a different authority. You were a citizen of earth. And you know who was, you know who was ruling over that or is ruling over that? That's Satan himself. He says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the flesh of the mind, desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he says, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places somehow when you become saved. And he goes on to, in verse 19 to explain that even further. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints. That you've been, given a, you've been made part of a new kingdom. You've been given citizenship in this kingdom. And that is a heavenly kingdom that has yet to be fully realized here on earth in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, in a very real realm, we are indeed citizens of that kingdom. You know, as citizens of the United States, we have certain rights and responsibilities. And the same is true of our citizenship in heaven. So I want to be careful, especially when I talk about the, the rights, or when I talk about what we gain from being citizens of heaven, because we often think about what we gain as citizens of the United States. And I looked this up last night. The Department of Homeland Security has a little chart about the rights and responsibilities of citizens. You have the right to vote. 
You have the responsibility to vote, right? You have the you have the right to um, uh, you have the right to live free and pursue freedom of religion. You have the responsibility to let your your neighbor and your other other citizens pursue that same right. So there's this chart that explains all that. And I'm afraid that when we talk about the rights and responsibilities that we have as a citizen of heaven, that we become, that we preach this prosperity gospel message, that God has just given us all these blessings and all we need to do is claim them. That's not at all what is being spoken of here. This is not a prosperity gospel message. That God wants to bless your socks off, give you wealth beyond measure here on this earth, but instead, the point is, you are rich in Christ in the spiritual realm. You have rights and privileges of heaven. Not all that this world has to offer, but all that the next has to offer. You may have very little of what this world has to offer, but that's not what matters. What matters is that you have been made a citizen of heaven. So the priorities of this world And the things of this world don't matter much. So we've been talking, as we worked our way through the book of Philippians, that's why Paul can say, I count all of this as rubbish compared to the surpassing value, the unfathomable riches of knowing Christ. That because I know Christ and what I've gained in Him, all this stuff that the world offers is nothing. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He's ta- in talking about what does it mean to be citizens of heaven. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. It's kind of long, but I want to read it. He said, it means, what does it mean to be we're citizens of heaven? It means that we are under heaven's government. Christ is the king of heaven. Christ the king of heaven reigns in our hearts. And our daily prayer is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The proclamations issued from the throne of glory are freely received by us. The decrees of the great King we cheerfully obey. Then as citizens of the new Jerusalem, we share heaven's honors. The glory which belongs to the beatified saints belongs to us, for we are already sons of God, already princes of the blood imperial, already we wear the spotless robe of Jesus' righteousness, already we have angels for our servitors, saints for our companions, Christ for our brother, God for our Father, and a crown of immortality for our reward." We share the honors of citizenship for we have come to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. As citizens, we have common rights to all the property of heaven. Ours are are its gates of pearl and its walls of chrysolite. Ours are azure light of the city that needs no candle nor light of the sun. Ours the river of water of life and the twelve manner of fruits which grow on the trees planted on the banks thereof. There is not in heaven, there is not in heaven that belongeth not to us. Things present or things to come, all are ours. Also as citizens of heaven, we enjoy its delights. Do they rejoice over sinners that, rep- that repent, prodigals that have returned? So do we. Do they chant the glories of triumphant grace? We do the same. Are they charmed with His smile? Is it no less sweet to us that dwell below? Do they look forward waiting for His second advent? We also look forward and long for His appearing. If then we are citizens of heaven, let us walk and let our walk and our actions be consistent with our high dignity. He says, 
What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? It means we're under heaven's government. That Christ the King reigns and rules over our hearts. And we share in heaven's honors. We have common rights to all the property of heaven. And we enjoy its delights as citizens. The point of verse 3 is that God has blessed us. Blessed be God, for He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That heaven is ours. And spiritual blessings are ours because we have been made citizens of heaven. So having seen that God has made us citizens, now let's consider, number two, that God has made us ambassadors. Number two, ambassadors. Look at, back at our text with me. Look at verses 3-4. through four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And I encourage you to do a study on that word choose, and it means God chose. Like, He picked you. There's really not much more to that. And we need to wrestle with what that means. How does that apply? The point is, God chose you. And that's what Paul really wants to drive home. Be encouraged, saints. God chose you. Before the foundation of the world, before you did anything good or bad, He chose you. And He chose you to be holy and blameless. He picked you out and made you holy. He made you blameless. In love. Now, by the way, I think this word, these two words, in love, go with verse 4. He made you holy and blameless in love. That's why you see there's a verse division after in love. Because the verse division assumes that the in love goes with the sentence that goes before it. It's one sentence in Greek, right? So grammatically, in the Greek, it can be either. Did he choose us to be holy and blameless in love? Or does it say, in love, He predestined us to adoption. Well, you can go either way. And both are true. The point is this. I think He chose us to be holy and blameless before Him in love because this idea of being set apart, being holy and blameless, and being loving, we see again and again together in Scripture. He set you apart, made you holy in love. You love God and you love others. That those two things go hand in hand again and again and again in Scripture. So as I mentioned before, while we may be citizens of heaven, while we're indeed part of Christ's kingdom, we're still living in a foreign land. That's why the Bible frequently refers to God's people as exiles, sojourners, foreigners, strangers. So while we are citizens of heaven, we're still on earth, given a purpose, that is called to serve as ambassadors. As I mentioned last week, it's commonly said that we are in the world, but not of the world. But as David Mathis has appropriately said, it would be better to say we are not of the world, but sent into the world. And this kind of thinking goes much better with Jesus' words in John 17. He said, I have given them your word, he's speaking to the Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. See, we say, well, we're in the world, but not of the world. We we almost make it sound like it's a pity that we're still here. And Jesus says, no, you're sent into this world for a purpose. 
He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart from the world in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified, made holy, set apart in truth. You see, we are called to be set apart for God in this world, but we are still sent into this world. And if there's any doubt this doesn't, that this applies to us, Jesus actually says in verse 20 of that text, He says, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for all those who believe in Me through their word. So He's saying, this isn't just for these people that I'm speaking to here, the disciples. I'm saying this about everyone who's going to believe hereafter. You see, we are set apart in this world while also being sent into the world as representatives of Christ. That's what it means to be an ambassador. We're called to represent Him, to live for Him, and to ultimately mirror Him so that we stand before a watching world and we present Christ and that they see Christ in us and through us. Precisely Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said, The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We don't live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. And he goes on and says, And God called us to this ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That because He died in our place, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ and we live as ambassadors. His representatives here on earth. And as ambassadors, we are called to represent Him. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. That as, as those who have been called to be citizens of heaven, we are called to represent Him as ambassadors, as somebody who does not who is here, but our citizenship is not here. We represent a nation other than this nation. By the way, this is not meaning that we shouldn't be patriotic or that there's nothing that there's anything wrong with being patriotic, but our allegiance is not to the United States of America or to Canada or wherever you're from, right? Our allegiance ultimately is to his kingdom. That ultimately we are citizens of a kingdom that will last forever. A kingdom without walls. So when we look at our brother from Spain, or our brother from South Africa, who is a brother in Jesus Christ, we are part of the same kingdom. Kingdom without walls that extends throughout time. This kingdom will fail. This kingdom will indeed one day fall. His kingdom will not. And we're called to be representatives, ambassadors, for that kingdom while living in this earthly one here. So having seen that God has made us citizens and God has made us ambassadors, now let's consider, thirdly, that God has made us sons. God has made us sons. Look at verses 5-7 through seven with me. He says, He predestined 
This word predestined has a little different um, idea than the word chosen. They fit together, by the way. That God chose us. The word chose or God chose us focuses on God's right, His ability, His sovereign ability to do as He wishes. He had the right to choose us. That's what choose means. The word predestined speaks to what He chose us for. The purpose. What is your destiny? And this is where we go back to where we started. What is the goal of life? What am I here for? To be a son of the King. He predestined us. He, he destined that we would be adopted. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself or to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us and the Beloved, that is Christ. Because in Him, we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. He gave us immeasurable, unfathomable riches. He bestowed them on us in Christ according to the kind intention of His will. I've been convicted a lot lately about the fact that God is not only merciful, but He's also kind. He's a kind God who loves us. He loves His glory. He loves us. And He chose us. He predestined us to be sons. This idea of adoption, God becoming our Father, is unique to Christianity. You won't find this in Islam. God's not a father. God's a horrible ruler. God is is not the father who loves and cares for his people in the same way in any other worldview or religion as we see in Christianity. It's almost hard for us to wrap our minds around a loving, heavenly father. One who created all things who breathed the world into existence, who we have sinned and rebelled against, who chose us and destined us to adoption. It's one of the most encouraging truths of all of Scripture, that God in His grace would choose us to be holy and blameless by the blood of His Son Jesus, so that He could make us His child. He sent His Son to die on the cross so that He could adopt us. That is hard to understand, especially if you're a parent. Sending your child to die so you could adopt another. J.I. Packer says, In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge, justification... He says, is a great thing. To be right with God the judge, that's a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, adoption is a far greater thing. He didn't just justify you. He didn't just declare you not guilty. He also made you an heir. He adopted you as a son or daughter. 1 John 3.1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Galatians 4, verses 4-5 through says, But when the fullness of time came, 
God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. By the way, adoption is not like some second class um, child. It's not like, Scripture doesn't look at adoption as though, well, I've got my real kids, and then I've got this, these adopted kids over here. Adoption, in some ways, is greater than physical descendancy in the world. Adoption is when a family says, yes, I will choose this one. The cost is great, oftentimes. And the cost to God was great. That it's a choosing, a purposeful choosing of one to bring them in and to make them fully an heir. And as sons and daughters of God, we haven't received a spirit of slavery. Romans 8 says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out, Father, God. In the midst of trial and affliction and trouble and aimlessness, we can cry out, God, Father, please. And the Spirit testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. As we cry out, Father, the Spirit testifies, yes, you are a child of God. So when you're provoked, what do you cry out is the question. I've done this a million times. I've got to do it again, right? right? So what's happening? Don't make me keep doing it, right? Water's coming out of the bottle. Why? Because there's water in the bottle. And when the Spirit is inside of us and we're provoked, when life is hard, we cry out, Abba, Father. And I've seen it. I've seen it so many times when people are just struggling and life is hard. And they cry out, Father God. It's not all, they don't always have all the answers. It's not, this, it's not that all of the theology is neatly mixed and they go, oh, I understand what's happening here theologically. No, they cry out, God, Dad, help. And that's what Romans 8 is talking about. He says we cry out because we're children of God. And if children, we're heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That we will be revealed as the sons of God. So we eagerly await our final adoption, the the redemption of our body. Praise God that we have not only been called and made citizens Ambassador and ambassadors, but also sons. So while we live in this world, we're not of this world. That our citizenship is not here. We don't pursue the things of this world. Instead, we pursue the things of the next. We seek to live for Him, to represent Him and live for His glory because we are ambassadors representing another nation in this foreign land in which we live. But we're not just citizens and ambassadors. We're also sons. We have direct access to the throne. He loves us. He cares for us like you love your children. So the question is this. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this idea that God has made us citizens, He's made us ambassadors, and He's made us sons? How do we take all of this and apply it to our lives? Well, we no longer need to live with a spirit of uncertainty, aimlessness, or fear. 
That's not how we're called to live, nor is it how we need to live. You see, as citizens, we can live in light of His promise. We can rest in His promise. Yes, we're here. Yes, there are trials in this world. But we are sent here for a purpose. So as citizens, we remember His promise. And as ambassadors, we live out His purpose. That we bring the Gospel to the nations. We represent Him and say, look, here is is the God who created the world and all that is in it, who sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins and was raised on that third day. We present the Gospel. And we live testifying to what He has done in our lives. He made me a citizen. You should be a citizen as well. We live as ambassadors with purpose. And when the trials of life come, and we have to cry out, we cry out, Abba, Father, not King. Yes, we are citizens. Yes, we are ambassadors. But when trials come into our lives, we don't cry out, King! We cry out, Abba, Father, help. Because as sons, He's given us peace. The ability to live a life of tranquility, knowing that we can rest fully in His grace. That He gave us grace and more graces on the way. Praise God for that. I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle with these very things. Uncertainty, aimlessness, and fear. What, what is all of this about? Am I really, am I doing the right thing? Am I going the right direction? Does any of this even matter? Maybe I should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I'll probably die. And, I, and yet, I think, we laugh, but I think sometimes that's how we really think. God says, no. I've made you a citizen. I've made you an ambassador in this world. But I've also called you to be a son. I chose you and I predestined you. Your destiny is to be a son. So in those times, cry out to me. Cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit within you will testify that He has indeed chosen you before the foundation of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace and Your love and for the truth of Your Gospel. God, may we be encouraged by what You have done. May we live out these truths. God, I pray that we would live as faithful citizens. God, that we would not pursue our own kingdoms or even the things of this world in which we live, but instead we would live knowing that You have called us to something greater, that we have the rights and responsibilities, that we have all the privileges that heaven can afford. We have them awaiting us, but we have them in a very real way here and now. God, help us to live that out. God, I thank You that You've called us to be ambassadors. That we can tell others that there is more than what this life has to offer. God, that we can represent You. May we represent You well. May You give us the grace to do so. And God, I thank You that You have called us as sons. God, that as sons and daughters, we can have peace. We can rest in Your love, in Your grace. Knowing that Your promises are true knowing that because You said You did not withhold Your own Son, that You would freely give us all good 
things. God, may our love and affection for you match your love and affection for us and your love and affection for your own glory. We praise you for all of this and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.